Welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. Glad that you're with us. We'll be in the Gospel according to Mark again today. It's the sermon series that we're currently in. So if you've got a copy of the Scriptures, go ahead and, and grab it and turn to chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible or don't own a Bible, there's some on the ends of the rows. Uh, if you do not own a Bible, take that home with you. We'd, we'd love that to be a gift from us to you. Uh, you can also Google Mark 10. That's Mark with a K, and uh, that's where we're going to be today. Now let me just say this up front, because we've got some work to do today. Could get a little dicey. We've got a long way to go. Uh, but but if, you've, if you're taking notes, if you'd like to take notes, there's a note sheet on your clipboard. I want you to write this at the very top of your note sheet. This is what I want you to write, okay? Here we go. This is what I want you to write. God hates brokenness. God loves you. God desires wholeness in every part of your life. If you take nothing else away from today, that is what I want you to remember, okay? Everything I'm about to say falls under that heading. Now, the other thing I'd like to do just to start is... uh, to explain to you the commitment to Scripture that we have as a church. It informs how we put together teaching series, informs how we believe we present to you the truth of God. So, so our way of doing that, if you, if you haven't noticed yet, is primarily, not, not always, but primarily to walk through books of the Bible. There's two reasons why we do that. I want to explain it because maybe some of you have wondered, why, why do we do it this way? These are the two reasons. First, we believe that in this book is life itself. And we want to protect ourselves, both, both as communicators of what is in this book uh, and receivers of truth. We want to protect ourselves from the human tendency to go ahead and take an idea that we have and read it into this book. Instead, we want to start from this book and extract what God meant by what he said. That that can be so challenging. I'm not saying we always get it right. I'm saying the reason we walk through books is to protect ourselves because we believe the Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we don't want to get in the way of that because we take our ideas and put them into the text. We trust the Word to speak for itself. The second reason is this. When you preach through books of the Bible, here's what always happens. You run into some interesting things. You're not allowed to cherry pick the most attractive, the most interesting, the most easily digestible topics that everybody wants to hear and just do those again and again and again. Instead, you have to teach and proclaim the full counsel of God, meaning God plates it for you and you got to eat it, whatever it is. He puts it, he mails it sometimes. It's plated. We saw Ryan do that faithfully last week. He didn't shy away from a very challenging, unpopular doctrine, the doctrine of hell. Go listen to that sermon if if you weren't here. 
So we go verse by verse by verse because it forces us to consider the full counsel of God, not just the parts that we like. And so this week, yet again, this methodology has proven effective because it is keeping us in the full counsel of God as today we confront another hard topic, which is divorce. Today we'll look at marriage and divorce because Jesus talked about marriage and divorce. Before we dive into the words of Jesus and the passage we'll look at, I want to just start by saying a few general things because this is such uh, just such a loaded, emotional, personal issue. First, divorce is not a problem to be solved. It's a symptom to be understood. So this topic actually just reveals a much deeper diagnosis of the heart that every single one of us struggles with. Whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you want to be married, whether you think maybe God's calling you to a life of singleness, uh, whether you've been divorced and remarried, or maybe you've been divorced and are not yet remarried, it calls all of us to diagnose this deeper issue. So this sermon is for every one of us. If we want to, as human beings, understand more about Christ and his relationship to his bride, the church, that's you and me, if you're a follower of Jesus. So this is going to be my approach. I'm going to talk and unpack what Jesus says. I'm going to try to explain what he's trying to teach us about marriage and divorce. And then then lastly, but probably most importantly, I'm going to try to say why Jesus is so serious about this topic, divorce in particular. And, and, and I, and I, and I want to set that out up front because you got to hang with me till we get to the end. Because the, the verses here have in the past and can be used as a club to beat people over the head. It's not what I'm trying to do here today. I want you to see why Jesus takes it so seriously because it's vital to understanding who he is and his relationship to us and our place in the world and why we get married in the first place and why we fight for our marriages. Now, I want to say this. If you've had a personal experience of divorce, or or maybe you've grown up where divorce has touched you very deeply and cut you in a way that uh, is profound, or maybe you're, you're in the season of separation in your marriage or in your, you're in a season uh, of rockiness and, and divorce feels like it's on the horizon. Uh, it's inevitable that, that some of the broad statements that I'll make up here won't touch neatly and nicely your story. They won't fit in perfectly, okay? Because um, every story of brokenness is not the same. Every, every story of marriage is not the same. Every story deserves customized hearing, wisdom, and maybe advice. And that can't be done in a 45-minute sermon. These, these circumstances that lead to divorce and brokenness in relationship, uh, there's a kaleidoscope of ramifications that they go, it goes everywhere. And, and that's best understood in the intimacy of one-on-one counsel. So if anything I say is unclear, causes deeper confusion or hurt or panic in you, please, 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 please reach out to myself or Pastor Ryan 
and we'd love to get together and, and just walk with you and hear your story and help, help you work through these things. I'm not going to be able to do it, do it all right here, right now, okay? Is that fair? Is that fair? Okay. Okay, here we go. To, um, to set the stage, it, we all kind of know how much divorce affects our society, but I just want to read, read you a few statistics. This is from the American Psychological Association. In Western cultures, more than 90% of people marry by the age of 50. 90%. So this means that the marriage experience is, is probably the most common relational experience that two people from different backgrounds can have with each other. It's a very common experience, marriage. Psychologists know that healthy marriages are good for couples mentally and physically. They know that healthy marriages are good for children. Growing up in a happy home protects children mentally, physically, educationally, socially. However, 40 to 50% of married couples in the United States divorce. Uh, The divorce rate for subsequent marriages is even higher. So in America, this is how this plays out. Every 36 seconds, somebody gets divorced. So you just think, how how many 36 seconds have we been up here? Somebody's been divorced. That's 2,400 divorces per day, 16,800 per week, 876,000 per year. That's a lot of broken relationships. You know, to be a PhD or prophet of God, to make a simple observation, divorce is a serious symptom that affects literally every single one of us in the room in one way or another. Now, we could go around the room and we could tell our stories of brokenness, the way that we've been touched by the brokenness of divorce. We won't do it now, so don't worry, but I do hope that many of you get to share your experience of, of, of brokenness, whether that's you know, three steps removed or, or it's, it's very personal, in a fellowship group setting. I ho- hope this week fellowship groups get a chance to share some of the brokenness. And this is not to shame anyone. It's not to attack anyone. It's not to attack your former spouse. It's not to brag about your own marriage. It's, it's not to say I'm holier than thou, why can't you figure it out? Uh, it's not to scare anyone out of marriage. It's simply to witness to the brokenness that divorce causes. And wh- why do we do that? Because the realities of divorce and the effects have often been trivialized, right, in our society by, by mass media. The trails of pain and brokenness swept under the rug. And that can make the words of Jesus harder and harder to hear. But, but when we hear honestly about the brokenness, that then maybe what Jesus has to say starts to make a little bit more sense. Now, now even when divorce is the only viable option, we don't need to chase the truth with platitudes. We need to call it what it actually is, a real and lamentable wreckage of God's good creation gone wrong. That's, that's what it is. We'll see why that is today. And the more we stop talking about the brokenness that divorce can create, the broken relationship creates, 
And the more we start calling it pragmatic or a normal part of the process to find happiness, the harder it's going for us, uh, it's, the harder it is going to be for us to start doing in the brokenness what we are called to do as God's people, which is love the people going through it. I mean, all the loneliness that we never see related to this issue. God sees it, but we don't. We can seek and pray for reconciliation if we actually know about the brokenness that's happening. And to understand the cascading effects that result from from brokenness. When we do that, when we start talking... Then God can move in and by the power of Christ start to redeem these parts of our community and our city and our nation. But we can't if we just trivialize, pragmatize divorce. Having said all of that, this doesn't mean that if you've been affected by divorce, personally been divorced, grown up in a broken home, that you're somehow more messed up than anybody else. That's not what I'm saying here. Because all of us are messed up by some wreckage of God's good design. Every single one of us is affected, and with any wreckage, no party is beyond repair. No, No party is irrevocably damaged. It just means that we need a force that is equal in power and purpose to rebuild that which has been broken. And so we got to get honest with it. So, having said all that, turn, if you're not already there, open back up Mark chapter 10. Here we go. Jesus, verse 1, Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. So the crowd is gathered, and, and Jesus is doing what he always does. He's teaching them. And, and then here's what happens. Pharisees came up. These were sort of the religious elite of the day. They'd probably come from Jerusalem. They came up in order to test him. And this is what they asked. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now no, notice, this is so important that they're trying to trap him or test him. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just press pause for a second and do a little excursus uh, because it's so important as we read the very direct and forceful and, and, to be honest, not very pastoral words of Jesus related to divorce. We have to understand that he's saying those things in response to men who are trying to trap him. And what's so interesting about this story is they're probably trying to, to trap him in the same thing that got his cousin, John known as John the Baptist, beheaded. So, so, so this is one of the downsides of walking uh, slowly through a book of the Bible like we are with Mark, is that uh, we can kind of miss the interconnections within a book, right? So, so normally, when the Gospel of Mark was written, it, it was read in its entirety to the church community, then they'd probably pass the scroll along to another house church and they'd read it. And it used to take about 45 minutes to read through the whole thing. So I need you to kind of imagine we were doing that and and approximately 11 minutes before I just read what I read in chapter 10, you would have heard the story 
about John the Baptist and how he died. And here's how the story goes. So there was the puppet king of Israel. His name was Herod. And Herod likes the look of his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And so they conspire together and Herodias divorces uh, her husband Philip so that she can marry her brother-in-law Herod. They get married. And, And old John the Baptist, truth teller that he is, he's out preaching in the countryside against this marriage, saying this is not lawful, this is not the way of God. And old Herodias hears of this and says, we need to arrest him. And so they arrest John, they throw him in jail, and he's sitting in jail, and then it's Herod's birthday. And so here's what Herod does. He throws a party for all of his buddies, all of his bigwigs, all of his military commanders, a big banquet. And and here's where it gets weird. At the banquet, he invites his once niece, now daughter-in-law, or stepdaughter, excuse me, to come and dance for him and all of his male friends. And they like it so much, they like her dancing, that, that, that old Herod tells his stepdaughter, I'll give you one wish, anything that you want. Well, she runs back to her mother, hearing that she can ask for anything, and says, hey, mom, what should I ask for? And Herodias, she doesn't like this John the Baptist because he's telling her that her divorce was uh, ungodly. And so uh, she says, here's what you ask. Go ask your stepdad for the head of John the Baptist. And so she goes back to Herod. The party's still going on, by the way, and says, hey, I figured out what I want. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And uh, John, or sorry, Herod, (laughs) Herod says, oh my goodness, I promised her in front of all my friends that I'd give her whatever she asked. I can't break my oath in front of my friends. And so they go and behead John the Baptist and bring his head to Herodias' daughter. I mean, do you see the irony here? I could could preach a whole sermon on this. The irony that, that, that it doesn't matter what I do in marriage and divorce, but I better not break an oath in front of my buddies. How often does that happen in our world? For some reason, we we think of an oath made before God, the marriage vows, as as somehow, you know what, not a big deal because love's involved and, you know, attraction, all this stuff, but never would I ever let my buddies down. Well, that story shows another thing as well. The domino effect of broken marriage. You see? Not only is Philip and Herodias' marriage broken, but now for some reason we've got the niece, stepdaughter, dancing in front of her stepdad and friends. And then the most ironic of all, literally, I'm not trying to be morbid here, the brokenness of that marriage causes John the Baptist's head to be broken off of his body. It's pretty clear. This always happens. It's this domino effect when brokenness enters God's good creation. But this is not just something that happens to sort of ungodly political figures. 
happens to godly people as well. In fact, in the, uh, in the story of King David, the greatest and godliest of Israel's kings, the same thing happens. I'm named after this man. This is a godly man, but he had brokenness in his life. Anybody? <laughs> I was thinking about this. Does anybody know anybody named Herod? Nobody's named after Herod, but lots of people are named after David because he was both a godly man and affected by the brokenness that often inserts itself into the marriage relationship. So this is the context with which we, we, we remember the story of John the Baptist when we hear this idea of divorce brought up again to try to test and trap Jesus. I bet what the Pharisees were thinking is, if we could get Jesus to say what John said, maybe they'll jail him too, cut off his head, then we're done with him, and we can get back to the power that we so love. Unpause. That's all inside this, this question, right? You gotta hear that. You gotta hear that because Jesus' answer is going to be pretty blunt because he's dealing with those kinds of cats. Okay. Mark 10. Let's start again in 2. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? Now we have to understand who Moses was. He was the highest authority for the Jewish people. I was trying to think of an illustration because sometimes we say, Moses comes up a lot and you're like, well, who's this Moses guy? Well, he's a prophet of ancient Israel. He helped them escape from slavery. He, he wrote uh, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, he's a great man, revered. I was trying to think, what, what, what could be equivalent? So the only, I, I came up with a, an example. Uh, but you have to do some imagination. This is, this is what you got to do. Imagine that you're a devout Roman Catholic, born and raised in the heart of Philadelphia, okay? Put on that hat. Have you ever done that before? Always something fun and new at Sedaris. Imagine you're a, Rome, a devout Roman Catholic, born and raised in the heart of Philadelphia. Here's who Moses was to you. He was some supernatural combination of George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, the Pope, and Sylvester Stallone. That's who he was to these people. He was, he was their hero. He was the pinnacle of everything good in the world. That was Moses. So, the, so Jesus asked, well, what's Moses say? Because he knows they revere Moses. Here's what the Pharisees say, verse 4. The Pharisees said, Moses, think Sylvester Stone, allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. And they're actually quoting from Deuteronomy, uh, which is the law that Moses wrote to govern the people of Israel. Now, I want to actually read for you. We've got this. This is the law that they're referring to. And I just want to show you how flimsy, really, their argument is. But then Jesus crushes them anyhow. But I just want you to read this. This is where they're getting this. Here's what Moses wrote. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, that's not even a command, is it? 
It's just explaining the situation. <laughs> that's where they're getting it from. Now, here, here, we'll just read on. And he writes her certificate for it and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the, la- and then the, latter, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then, here's the command, then... Her former husband, who sent her away the first time, may not take her again to be his wife. That's what they're quoting. See, Moses allows us to write a certificate of divorce, which is true. He did allow it, but it's not like he's saying, hey, if things get hard, this is what you should do. He's just saying, you know what? Y'all are troublemakers. We gotta, we gotta give give you some way out. Now, there there was much debate over this, even in Jesus' day, amongst the Jewish schools of theology. There was a more liberal school of theology known as Hillel, and they thought that this indecency that Moses says allows for a certificate of divorce, that that can include anything, including your wife spoiling dinner. Or, or even just finding another woman in town more beautiful. Uh, the more conservative school of Shema, they thought that indecency referred only to sexual unchastity. So that's part of the backstory here. There's always been a debate, even way back in the day, about what constitutes divorce. Okay, so this is not a new conversation. It's always it's always been a part of the uh, of this topic. Well, well, what is divorce? Now, um, Jesus accepts, accepts that, that, that Moses did permit divorce. He accepts that. He says, yeah, yeah. But he challenges them to consider the distinction between permission and allowance versus a command. That's, that's part of what he's about to do here. And this is such an important concept to grasp um, and, and you have to remember the tone, right? The tone is, these guys are confrontational, and so Jesus is coming back at them confrontationally, not pastorally, because he knows what they're trying to do. So, so read it in this proper tone. When Jesus calls them out, and, and this is what he's, what he's trying to tell them, don't focus on what God permits or what Moses permits in a post-fallen world. Rather, focus on what God desires and wills for our best. And if you don't, if all you want to talk about is what is permissible, that's actually a revelation of your heart already, you Pharisees. You've already shown me what your heart looks like because you keep asking about permissions instead of the heart of God. So, so let me say it like this. If, and th- this can happen in any conversation, not just marriage and divorce, anything in this life. If you are constantly looking for the boundaries, you will never find the heart of God. If you are constantly looking for the heart of God, chances are you'll stay safely within the boundaries. Now, 
Look at what Jesus says to their very flimsy answer about permission. Verse 5. And Jesus said to them, Only because of your hardness of heart did Moses write you this commandment. You see, he's saying, It is, but it's not meant to be. In fact, the allowance of divorce, Jesus is saying, is a sign that there's serious brokenness in the heart of God's people. Serious brokenness in the community of God's people. We see that, right? We see that today. We see that in the world at large, that there's serious brokenness. So, if you're, what I'm, one of the things I'm trying to do today is think what, what, what you'd be thinking as you're hearing this and trying to give you some answers. I can't do them all, but, but you're, you're maybe hearing, well then, if that's not God's heart, why is he allowing it? Why does he allow Moses? Because Moses is writing empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's the words of God uh, kept for us. And why, why would he allow this? Why would Moses, why would God allow this? Now, now here's the answer. God will allow concessions to his good, perfect will because... He wants the effects of sin to be curbed in the here and now. Um, I, could, I could show you a lot of other places where this happens, uh, but you just got to trust me here that yes, Moses is writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit, but he is saying at times divorce, and it's the case today as well, might be the only remedy to release somebody from a harmful relationship. And God loves us so much that he wants to curb sin in the community. And so he allows this thing, this brokenness, this broken relationship, he allows it to be a part of the the community of God's people because it's either that or they're destroyed. So that's sort of uh, the mindset we should think about when we even think about today What are the reasons that God still allows divorce? And and very specifically, the the New Testament is clear, and Jesus is clear, that there are two things, two things at least explicitly that he'll say, which is one, adultery, and two, desertion. Those are two reasons. Now, that doesn't mean that you must get divorced if those things happen. It just means that God realizes the pain that those can create, the vulnerability that those can create, the harm that those can create, he allows, he concedes to divorce. Uh, let's throw that one up here, Matthew. In Matthew, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that. Jesus says, uh, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say, this, he's quoting the Old Testament. But what I say to you is that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we won't see Jesus add that concession in here because remember, he's talking to opponents, he's not talking pastorally. Um, I I would just add, even though it's not explicit in the text, that as you read the New Testament and you read about marriage, uh, I'm very comfortable saying uh, that other reasons that fall under these broad categories of desertion and adultery 
uh, and harm would be physical, psychological, sexual, or spiritual abuse. Those are reasons that God allows for divorce to curb the effects of sin that it might not destroy us. Because he loves us. Because he knows people are evil. Because he knows the world is fallen. So he affirms that Moses did allow divorce and then he says the all-important word. Anytime you see this in Scripture, you pay attention. But, Mark 10, 5. Look what he says. But, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Whatever Therefore, God has joined together, let not man, let not human beings separate. Guess who also wrote those words, by the way? Moses. So, so part of it is, is Jesus is poking them, saying like, oh, you quoted Moses, let me also quote Moses. But what he's also doing is saying, even more important than Moses, this is the original intent of God from the foundations of the world for marriage. What is, is not what ought. Jesus knows that on this planet, in this season of salvation history, we will never be completely free from the brokenness, of divorce and separation, but he wishes it were so. God wishes it were so. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are working, sacrificing everything to rid this kind of brokenness from the reality of God's good creation. That's what he's doing. And so that's what he's telling the Pharisees. He's like, yes, it is, but that's not how it ought to be. It wasn't at the beginning, and that's definitely not where it's going. Where it's going is wholeness. Where it's going is joy, not brokenness, not shattering. And so every time we talk about divorce or proceed with divorce, with cold, calculating voidness, when we don't lament, when we don't cry tears of great sorrow, when we don't rip our garments and put on our sackcloth of grieving and mourning. We are simply magnifying the brokenness and the foothold that sin has in our world because it's not how God intended it to be. Jesus is trying to save us from our constant rationalization and pragmatic living. And he calls out the Pharisees on it. So, so, 
So I want, I want to just highlight something that Jesus does because it's such a good example of how we can get back to understanding what God intends. It's a way to sort of uh, fine-tune our creator compass. And, and what he's doing is he walks back from where we are to where we started. So he's saying, okay, Moses said this, but let's walk it back and see what he said before. And let's walk it back once more and see what God said at creation. And you know what? I'm going to walk it back even to the mind of God before creation because you know what? I was there. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and, and the heart of God in the heart of creation at that moment was that anything that God created, that anything he put together would not be taken apart. He's saying, I'm not just another Moses. I'm something much more. And we really see that when he then takes the disciples into a private room and explains to them. Because he no longer quotes scripture. He just says truth. Because he's more than a prophet. He's God himself. And that, that's the question we've been asking throughout the gospel of Mark. Uh, it's a question that Jesus asks. Who do you say that I am? And in the way he deals with this, 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 uh, this topic of marriage and divorce, he's answering, I'm not just a rescuer like Moses. I'm not just trying to help you avoid the harmful effects of sin. I'm a restorer. I'm putting it all back together again. I'm something more than Moses. That, that, that might be missed upon us, but it wasn't missed by the Pharisees. They knew what he was saying. That he's taking it all the way back. He's going old school. He's going back to creation itself. From the beginning, this is what marriage was meant to be. The other thing that Jesus points out, look here again when he's quoting Genesis saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now we have to understand the construction of these verbs here. The first a verb, which is a man shall leave, that's an active verb, meaning the man is doing it. The man is making a choice to leave his father and his mother's family and to start a new family with his wife. But the second verb is actually what's called a divine passive, meaning it's something that's happening to him, and it's happening to him by God. So God is actually the one connecting them. So, so you've maybe heard it, cleave. It really just means to be joined together, but it's something that God is doing. And here's what Jesus is saying. When God acts... When God joins something together, only God should be able to separate it. So you see all this fine wood furniture up here? You see all this? This was made by Jordan. Jordan leads worship for us. This is incredible. He designed it. He put it together. And the first, uh, he's going to hate that I share this, but he's not here. The first time he put it together, he was off by like a centimeter. And we couldn't fit the stage into the carts. And so we were trying to figure out, well, what do we do? Well, he built these things so well, and he glued them together. In fact, he just realized last week he forgot to put the screws in because the glue he used was so good, he forgot. And so he's like, you know what? I think I can just tear them apart and then change just one panel, make it a little bit wider, and we'll be fine. Well, he got home, and all the strength that he had... He, he tried to tear them apart. And you know what happened? He shattered the whole thing into pieces. 
because the glue was so tight at the joints, you could not just separate the two pieces of wood. It shattered everything. And so he had to rebuild the whole thing. Thank you, Jordan. <laughs> I've been meaning to say thank you for these cards. That's my way. Backhanded compliment. Thank you, Jordan. He did it. He put them back together. He built new ones. Thank you, Jordan. Okay. But, but here's what I'm trying to say. When God puts something together, like, like Jordan put these cards together, it's glued in there so tight that you cannot separate it without breaking all other parts of it. There, there's no such thing as just, oh, this is where the glue was, let's just separate it and, and put it back together. It's so tight that it shatters the entire structure. And this is what happens with things God's put together. Most notably, marriages. And so when you try to break those apart, when human beings try to break those apart, and they create instruments to tear apart the wood from the wood, it's not clean at all. It shatters. And so there's a degree of brokenness that far exceeds if humans were just to put something together. When God was involved in putting it together, the degree of brokenness is magnified beyond even our recognition. So all these things combined to Jesus telling the Pharisees and the crowds that you've been thinking about marriage all wrong. You've got it wrong. You need to go back and read the beginning. Look at Mark 10.10 now. So, so this public sort of dialogue ends, and then it says this in verse 10, and in the house, the disciples, that's his close inner circle, they asked him again about this matter. And Jesus said to them, whoever divorces his wife marries and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery now, the first thing I want to point out here is that the disciples needed further explanation. We, we all need further explanation on this. Like I said, this, this is not, you know, this is a 45-minute marriage seminar. It's not enough, okay? Uh, we need more explanation, and we need to press into this and ask Jesus to help us understand this. The disciples needed that too. The other thing I want to show you is how... I mean, this is revolutionary if you were just reading this in Jesus' day. Uh, because he's basically saying, you know, it's the same, male or female. He's saying, if a husband divorces his wife, it's adultery. If a wife divorces her husband, it's adultery. Um, that he would sort of put the wife on that level is revolutionary. It's hard, hard for us to see that. But that she even is involved in the conversation is profound. And it could, it could be partially due to, and he's doing this in private now, he's saying, you know, like old Herodias, what she did was adultery. So that could be what's going on here as well. Um, but these are, these are strong words here. And Jesus will call it adultery. And everybody knows, because it's one of the Ten Commandments, it's that adultery is wrong. Because what he's saying, no judge 
or clerk or clergyman can break, actually break up what God has put together. And so when that person gets remarried, it's the same as adultery. That's the logic. Now, if you are counseling someone, not, not just professionally, just as a friend, who's going through divorce, who has gone through divorce, this is not the passage to take them to. This, this is not the first thing you say, like, oh, let's go read Mark 10, 10 to 12. You don't go here. That doesn't mean it's any less true. It's just remember the context that Jesus is saying these words. He's explaining in his prophetic role what is true, absolutely, in the eyes of God. A better place to go if someone has been through divorce, has been through remarriage perhaps, is is to John chapter 8 and the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus says to the woman, or says to the crowd, let anyone who was without sin cast the first stone. And then he waits, and he waits, and eventually the whole crowd leaves. And Jesus says lovingly to the woman, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. That, that's where you take people. That's how Jesus views those who have been through this shattering effect of adultery and divorce. It's, it's so important that you hear. Don't, don't take them here. Don't take them here. They are not beyond repair. They are not beyond forgiveness. It's just the reality of this is why it's so damaging. Now, if, uh, this is another quick, I got a lot of quick sidebars. If you've been divorced and long to be remarried or you've been divorced and already remarried, let me say this. It's clear here that Jesus is saying that, that if you divorce and get remarried, that there is an act that's counter to his will. It's, it's adultery. Um, but, if you read enough of the Bible, what you realize is all, there's, there's all sorts of examples of where people do things that God doesn't want them to do, and then God uses those very things, and he redeems them, and it's not like they're living the rest of, of those things in sin, okay? So, so say you've been divorced and you've been remarried, that, that act of remarriage was like adultery, but as long as as you repent before God, ask forgiveness for whatever sins led to the divorce, whatever part of it you had responsibility for, ask forgiveness from, from, from your former spouse, and you ask God for forgiveness for the divorce itself, then what you should do is remain remarried. Don't, don't go divorce who you've remarried. You're just multiplying the effects of the brokenness. He says, that's happened, it's in the past, we all have sin that's in the past, but, but as long as you've given that to Christ and he's died for that on the cross, remain married to your new spouse until death do you part, because those new vows are just as binding as the first. I just wanted to say that because it, it can maybe be confusing 
But what do I do? We can grab coffee. Anybody that wants to talk more about this, understand this more. So that's where we are. This is what Jesus says is marriage and divorce. Now I want to to talk very briefly about why this is so serious to Jesus. Why is divorce so serious? And the answer, if it's not clear yet, goes something like this. God takes divorce seriously because God takes marriage seriously. And to understand why marriage is so important to him, we've got to dive even one step deeper into an explanation of the intended purposes of marriage. And, and there's these tiers to, to the purposes of marriage. It's not just all one thing, but sort of tiers of importance. Yes, marriage gives us companionship and happiness. Yes, marriage um, in, the, you know, in, in the confines of marriage, we get to experience great gifts of God like sex and parenthood and the blessings of our spouse's talents. But as you begin to transcend these tiers of importance, you come to two that, that, that are even more weighty. God says, I put male and female together because for most people we, can, we can't accomplish certain parts of God's mission that he has for us without the intimate marriage partnership. So I'm putting you together to accomplish some mission. And then even above that, God will say that my plan for inventing marriage is that marriage becomes the primary living, breathing portfolio or portrait of what, what Jesus Christ is to the people of God. Okay? And we see this in Ephesians 5. Where, where Paul is talking about marriage, and then he keeps saying, but I'm also talking about Jesus and the church, and you need husband sacrifice for your wives, just as Jesus has done for the church. Uh, let me try to explain that concept to you. Who's been to the Louvre? In Paris. Oh, this is great. World's largest museum. 600,000 square feet of humanity's creativity and artistic genius on full display for anybody that can afford to get to Paris to see. 35,000 priceless masterpieces and antiques, yet there's still one attraction that seems to jump out at you that highlights the creative genius of mankind. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Mona Lisa. Great. Great. The Mona Lisa. And you know, it's funny, you go there if you've been there. It's not a very big painting. It's 21 by 30 inches. So it's, it's petite. It's petite. <laughs> but um, it speaks in a way that none of the other paintings do. It delivers a message that none of the other paintings deliver. And it attracts attention like none of the other creative arts, artwork does at the Louvre. Marriage, marriage, is God's Mona Lisa to help us understand the gospel, to understand what what he has done through Jesus in the sacrifice, the death for our sin, the resurrection to new life. Marriage is actually a picture for the world to see of who Jesus is to the church.
Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be married to experience who Jesus is to the church. The painting of Mona Lisa is not Mona Lisa. Okay? So what I'm not saying is that you're missing out on some experience of God if you're not married. What I'm saying is that for, for in God's plan, he's intended marriage to be a painting of the better thing, which is Mona Lisa herself, which is Jesus and his church itself. And so obviously God wants to protect his Mona Lisa. He's going to put security around it. He's going to hate when people come and vandalize it, take it without permission, counterfeit it, sell it on the street. He's going to come after that. Because he's like, that's not the real thing. You're vandalizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. So he gets pretty passionate about it. I might get passionate too. This is why Jesus takes divorce so seriously. Because the union of marriage, when it is broken, becomes the most serious picture of the separation of God and his bride. And he he hates the brokenness. He hates that picture. He does not want that picture to remain in his world because it's not true. That is not the way God is with us. God is doing everything to bring it back together. And so he's got to keep the pictures as pure as possible. So your marriage, if you do it well, can be the greatest retelling, the greatest dramatization. I love that in Spanish class. Oh, dramatization today. The greatest dramatization of the gospel story played out day in, day out, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, because you are getting to be the Mona Lisa for the world to see this is how Jesus is with his bride, the church. And when your friends come to you and they say, our marriage is beyond repair, you say, no, it's not. Because God was never beyond repair with his people. The cross, the resurrection proves it. So you tell them to fight. And you tell them the only way it will work is to dramatize the gospel in your marriage, which means somebody, one of the spouses, hopefully both of the spouses, will die, not literally, (laughs) but die to some way of thinking, some idea, some opinion, some habit, some dream, some decision that they hold dearly because they care about the picture more than they care about themselves. They care about the gospel more than they care about their habit or dream. It will take one or both spouses to die undeservedly, unfairly, just like Jesus did. And when that way of thinking, that opinion, that habit, that dream, that decision is truly dead, truly gone, like our sin, as far as the east is from the west, taken deep into the grave, then resurrection is waiting to burst forth with new life. Life to the full. Relationship to the full. But you've got to let that thing die. Can't keep it in the closet. And then you know what? You do that again and again and again because it's a million tiny brush strokes. 
to create this good of a picture. Jesus fights so hard for wholeness in marriage because it's the thing that points back to the wholeness he wants in his relationship with us. So here are four reasons why you must fight. You must fight for your marriage. And none of these are going to be romantic. And I know this because I am a helpless romantic. I watch Masterpiece Theater, including the show Dark, which is really, if you've seen the show, embarrassing. I watch it by myself, not even with my wife. I'm a romantic. But, but, but my romantic ideas of marriage are not true. These are true. Four reasons. Here we go. Ready? Well, first let me say, Jesus didn't die for your happiness. He died for your wholeness. And that's why these reasons are true. First, here's why you fight. For the love of your children. Fight for your marriage. Right, right after this, Jesus will, will talk about children and how he loves children. He says, bring the children to me. And so people might hear the church talk about divorce and marriage and, 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 and read this passage. I mean, you might say, I can't believe you read this passage aloud in the city of Seattle. You say, like, how cruel. But you know what the church always gets right? We love children because Jesus loved children. And to fight for your marriage, to fight for your friend's marriage is to fight for children. And Jesus always fights for the vulnerable. Second reason. Fight for your love of God. Fight for your marriage. Because you know it's not just for your sake, it's not just for your kid's sake, it's for God's sake. His glory is on the line. His created intention is on the line. Fight for your love of God. Third, fight for your marriage, for the love of the gospel. If you cannot fight for your marriage, it probably means you don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is about sacrifice. It's about doing the very hardest thing in order that a greater thing could come. In your marriage, you will understand grace, the grace of the gospel. In marriage, you will understand the sacrifice of the gospel. You will both experience both of those things given to you, mercy, grace, sacrifice, and you will give them. And over your life, in marriage, and this can happen in any relationship too, but in marriage it's particularly intensified, you will come to understand the gospel. And if you just give up, you'll never actually understand the gospel. And you'll think the gospel is about your happiness. It's not. It's about your wholeness. And finally, we fight for our marriage for the love of eternity. In Mark 12, just go two chapters over, a second question is asked by a different group of religious leaders. They say, Jesus, tell me about, uh, I'm going to give you a scenario. A woman marries a husband, and in the Mosaic Law, it says if, if, uh, if that husband dies without bearing children, the brother of the man who died is supposed to marry 
that wife to give her an heir, to keep the name going. And so this happens six times in the hypothetical, and they get to the end and they say, okay, in heaven, who, in the resurrection, who will this woman be married to? And Jesus says something so interestingly. He says, you don't know anything, period. You especially don't know the scriptures, and you especially don't understand the resurrection, because in heaven, there's no marriage. What? That might blow some of you away. There's no marriage. Marriage is, a, is an earthly thing because it's the Mona Lisa. Once you're with Mona Lisa, you don't need to go to the Louvre. You just say, hey, look like this a little bit. Do that thing with your eyes. <laughs> we don't need it. <laughs> now, we still have companionship and love and intimacy with those that we've spent this life with, but, but marriage is not the same. So he's saying, you don't understand. Your marriage is temporal. Until death do you part. And so even if you have one of the most challenging relationships, the challenge, most challenging marriage, I heard this seminary prof, he, uh, I respect him so much, and his wife had a chronic back uh, disease, and, and, she, and he took care of her, and he sacrificed for her, and his life was not what it would have been had she not had this, and he stuck with her, because he knows one, she will not be debilitated for the rest of her life. And two, no matter how hard a marriage is, it's only temporal to show the glory and the grace of God made known in the gospel for your love of eternity. <laughs> You're on mission through your marriage in the good and the bad, and you never give up. And you fight, and you fight, and you fight. And, and as I was, I was writing fight so many times, I was like, my favorite movie in all the world is Braveheart. And this is what marriage is like. You're looking at the hardest thing, the thing that 40 to 50% of Americans fail at, the hardest thing, and you look at it and you say, I don't know if I can do it. And then old William Wallace steps in front of you, and he says, I'm William Wallace. And then somebody from the crowd yells, William Wallace is seven feet tall. And then William says, I've heard. He's got fireballs. Oh, no. Bolts of lightning. Oh, fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. He says, I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. Will you fight? And what do they yell? No. We'll run and we'll live. And William says, yeah, fight and you may die. Run, you'll live at least a while. And dying in your bed many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives? They'll never take our freedom. Will you fight? At this point, you guys get really rowdy. Will you fight? Yeah. Will you fight for your marriage? Yeah. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, give us a renewed sense of your glorious gospel that we realize that we, in, in, in the dramatization of the gospel through our marriage, get to be a sermon in and of itself for our neighbors and our friends and our family to see as we sacrifice who we are for your greater good, for your mission in the world. 
for the wholeness that you so long for in all parts of your good creation. God, if we've experienced divorce, if we ourselves have been divorced, I just pray that you and your goodness and grace and mercy would help us to know that you died for that sin on the cross, that we do not need to live in shame, but we need to pursue holiness and rightness in the way you see relationships and the way you've designed marriage. And if we get remarried, God, that we would fight in that marriage for the wholeness that you so long for. God, help us to be a beacon of hope in a city that struggles to answer this question. What is marriage? And why would we fight for it? Help us to be people that can show them the new life that comes when we press into the deeper parts, the deeper pains, the deeper sacrifices therein. We pray this all in the name of Jesus because he did this for us, because he sees us like his bride and he refused to let us be separated from him. It's in his name that we pray.